Welcome to Vibrant Visionaries with Heidi Bennett. I am Heidi Bennett, and I have a guest today who we are actually pretty much meeting for the first time here on the podcast. Please welcome David Weiner. Hello there. Happy to be here, Heidi. Happy to have you here, David. (laughs) So I heard David and he got on my radar through my friend's podcast, which at this point you will have heard my conversation with Ben Walker's story. So David was a guest on his podcast, he and Amanda's podcast. And so I just was tickled with your conversation with them and reached out on Twitter. And here we are. So yeah, David, How do you describe what it is that you do for a living? Well, I would say that simply I am an entertainment journalist. That's kind of the most broad description I can give what I do. There's obviously a lot more. And then, you know, we could peel back the layers. I write about entertainment. I live in Los Angeles. And the things that I do write about are mostly film. And uh, the the sweet spot that I really enjoy writing about is genre entertainment, sci-fi, fantasy, horror, superheroes, action, anything that kind of fits in, in that category or those categories and checks those boxes. And I have, I have a background that supports this kind of stuff. Prior to being a freelance entertainment journalist, I worked for Entertainment Tonight for 13 years, the TV show, writing for their website, ET Online. And I also was the editor-in-chief or executive editor of Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. And that was a real joy to take part in. And so I'm curious, between the two of those, did the famous monsters of Filmland, did that automatically mean you were covering things that you were a little bit more interested in than, say, Entertainment Tonight? Were there things there where maybe you weren't as interested but kind of had to work on it anyways? Absolute understatement. Yeah, there are. <laughs> 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 Entertainment Tonight is is the gold standard. It's been it's the show that's been around since the early 80s and they they set the bar for entertainment news and journalism in terms of the types of stuff that they would cover that was very not only the glitz and glamour but then uh how things are made and behind the scenes sneak peeks and things like that and over the years in order to compete with the competitors they started veering towards a lot more tabloid coverage and uh entertainment tonight would still take the high road by saying this was reported and that was reported and we got this exclusive about this story about Anna Nicole Smith or you know Paris Hilton or Kim Kardashian. And as an employee of Entertainment Tonight Online, breaking news, the 24-7 news cycle is just a part of the the plate when you go to that buffet and you get all the dessert first and you put it on your plate and you put on those delicious side dishes that are greasy and bad for you but taste so good. And then someone says, no, 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 you need your roughage, you need your vegetables and you have to do that first. And that's kind of how I saw my role at Entertainment Tonight. For all the the breaking news and being literally being on call like a doctor uh, to cover celebrity deaths and DUIs and incarcerations and fights and this, that, and the other thing, which I really just didn't enjoy. So uh, that was kind of a role I filled there. And uh, so to answer your question, I really, really disliked the tabloid element of my job. But 
I got to do so many wonderful, fun, cool things. I got to uh, do set visits. I got to do junkets where you sit down and talk to the filmmakers and stars of, of movies and TV shows and so on. I, I got to arrange my own shoots and chit chats where it was, whether it's on the location of a, of a set or a well-known location for a movie or just having someone sit literally at a table with me and drink coffee and chit chat about their career, whether they were a comedian or a you know horror star, uh, I really enjoyed doing that stuff, and it allowed me to really take pride in what I was doing. That sounds really exciting and also gratifying. I'm wondering off the top of your head if there's one or two of those interviews or opportunities that you'd love to just share something that was special for you. Sure, sure. Uh, you know, also, I want to add that those interviews continued on with my uh, run currently as an entertainment journalist, and uh, also with uh, Famous Monsters. And oh, cool. so when you do bring that up, I, I the one that, that comes to mind first and foremost was a Famous Monsters interview. I, I would do pieces where, in addition to contemporary projects, I would do these retrospective pieces that would look back at TV shows and movies that were celebrating 30, 40-year anniversaries. And I'd like to add that Famous Monsters, for those who aren't familiar with the magazine, it's a magazine that's been around since 1958. And it's really an iconic title that was tremendously influential to filmmakers and creative types alike, going back to you know Stephen King and Steven Spielberg and Peter Jackson and Guillermo del Toro. So people don't always necessarily understand that it's not just monsters. It's sci-fi, it's fantasy, it's horror, it's superheroes. It really covers all those genres that I really love so much. And... Uh, I was doing a retrospective on the, the TV show Space 1999 mm -hmm. you know, that starred uh, Martin Landau and Barbara Bain. And I reached out to Martin Landau to see if he'd be interested in talking about that TV show specifically and some other things. You know, I, I wanted to sort of focus on Ed Wood uh, among his, his very, he had a variety of, of roles and he was such a wonderful actor. But uh, I was focusing on the genre stuff. And to my pleasant, Surprise! Not only did they did his his manager respond saying, "Sure, he'd love to talk to you. What would you like to do? Do you want to you know sit down? Do you want to do it on the phone?" And I said, "Yeah, I'd love to sit down with him if possible." You know, and they said, "How much time do you want?" And I said, "Oh, you know, half hour would be great." And usually, when you say half an hour, you're hoping you'll get forty five minutes, maybe an hour. And uh, I, I met the gentleman. This is obviously this is about two years before he passed on. And we sat at the conference room table in his manager's office. We talked for four hours. Wow. He regaled tales of, of Hollywood and, and shared stories uh, that <laughs> were off the record that I couldn't even talk about that I felt like it was almost therapy session for him. But it was also, it was like a one-man show. You know, he'd, he'd do uh, impersonations of, of Alfred Hitchcock and... You know, some of his favorite directors and actors and Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. And it was absolute treat. My gosh, what an opportunity. I love him in Ed Wood and some other things that aren't 
you know, coming to mind, uh, that's definitely the iconic role that yeah. kind of crimes and misdemeanors. I mean, uh, he, he's he's done so many many things. Tucker on that, the man in his dream with Francis Ford Coppola. Oh right. Oh, uh, the, the yeah. Check it. Check out his list of things. Uh, he was in North by Northwest. That's the Hitchcock connection. Uh, playing the bad guy, one of the bad guys, and um, you know the, the original Mission Impossible TV show. Uh, it's just it's just an endless list, and it was an endless <laughs> amount of stuff. Oh my gosh! I'm laughing because I'm thinking of the stuff that was off the record, you know. But it brings a smile to my face thinking about it. So, with something like that, you did it for Famous Monsters. Do you have access or a link or anything where we could actually read the transcript of that, or where does that live now? Uh, that lives in the magazine itself. Uh, if you want to buy the magazine, that's how you get it. But because that was several years ago now, uh, that was a 2015 mm-hmm. uh, winter article. If you check out my Twitter, uh, my Twitterings, occasionally I'll share some stuff like that. And I'll share either some of the article or maybe even the whole article, depending how long it is. And uh, that one I've, I've posted on Twitter. I'll tell you, my handle is uh, at Tiki Ambassador, and it was either that or it was my uh, site that I run, which is called It Came From Blog. And so the Twitter for that is at It Came From Blog. People know by now in the show notes, I always have all the links available so people can follow you or keep up with whatever you're doing. And speaking of it came from blog, Mm -hmm. uh, you and I were twittering about the other day and talking about movies. Uh, Yeah, well, it was about Ed Wood. And it's funny. Yeah, I mean, the the wonderful thing about social media is that you're always actively engaged in learning new things. And you're also instantly forgetting, (laughs) which which speaks volumes about the, uh, you know, the content uh, of social media and how our brains work. But I do remember very specifically singling out that movie in that it's a movie that that is really wonderful for those who haven't seen it because it's about it's a Tim Burton film and it's about uh, Ed Wood who's infamous for making arguably the worst film ever made, Plan Nine from Outer Space. But he's also a very beloved character and uh, in real life. And he was played by Johnny Depp. It's about his uh, in addition to trying to get Plan Nine and other films made. It's about his very special friendship that he made with Bella Lugosi in in Lugosi's last days, the you know the Dracula star. And uh, I, I what I wrote or point, pointed out in you know s- several characters, but not too many, is that uh, it's a great movie about not only friendship but uh, in, the enthusiasm. Uh, in the face of adversity and doing what you want to do and being as creative as you can be, uh, regardless of your <laughs> your talent, you know, it's, it's really about your enthusiasm for something that get, gets things done. I think that's one of many reasons that it is one of my very favorite movies of all time is that enthusiasm, regardless of your talent. And I feel like there's some old messages that I feel are a little bit false that say, you know, just keep your head down and, you know, you'll be a success if you keep trying or, you know, these things that are about like becoming a success if you just try really hard. And and I feel like that's sort of missing the point is that instead of trying to be the very best, just do the thing that lights you up and gets you excited and experiment and fumble and bumble along the way. And no matter where it, you end up, 
you still are going to end up doing something that is experimental and interesting and that you're going to learn from. And and like you said, there's friendship there, there's camaraderie, there's feeling safe amongst your peers to do weird things or be yourself for Ed Wood to, you know, be a cross-dressing man and at least in the, you know, Ed Wood movie, putting on that outfit, getting his Angora on and having that sort of... Yeah, the Angora sweater, you know, and when you're, sorry to interrupt, but, you know, well, you know, when you're super stressed out, sometimes you just got to put your on your Angora sweater on and everything will be okay. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I like how they, I just love that movie is just very loving towards him. And I, I really appreciate that among many other things that just being really funny and quotable oh, yeah. and, and sweet and hilarious. But yeah, just that idea of just doing it because, because you're driven to do it, to make things. And, and what I had mentioned on Twitter was that one of my other favorite movies that did that for me was that it came from Kuchar movie about the Kuchar brothers. Mm -hmm. And so that just reminded me because of the, the title of your blog that it It came came from from dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) To your point, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer of, uh, you know, if you build it, they will come, you know, that's field of dreams, but it's, I think it's very true. There there are a lot of people who they, they shoot for a home, you know, they want to get a home run off the bat the first time they're out doing whatever they're doing because they want to be hugely successful. And, uh, you know, the world it seems to, in terms of perception, only appreciate those who really knock it out of the park every single time. But a lot of people don't realize the fundamentals of doing anything have to have roots in your own passion for what you're doing in the first place. And like you said, you had a stumble, you know, there's lots of, lots of hard work that needs to be done. But most importantly, if it's something that, that you're passionate about and something that you really enjoy doing, and if you just do it and create things and create product, whatever it may be, you know, tangible or online or whatever in between, people will start to find you, you know, people will find and, and appreciate what you're doing. It might not be giant masses. It might take a long time to have to build an audience. If you want to create something that is for the masses, you have to work with stepping stones. But, you know, my my, my dad gave me lots of sage advice. I, I was very lucky to have very loving, loving parents and a very patient and supportive dad. And, uh, you know, one of the things that kind of pops into mind was he would say, David, I, I do, I'm doing very well in, in life, but it's not because I'm the smartest. There are always smarter people around me, but I am also one of the people who works the hardest. And if I try hard and if I do things rather than hope for things to happen, things will eventually fall into place. And I've, I've always held that to be a very, very important lesson in life. Well, I definitely agree with that. And I feel like one of the things to add to that is just that whatever you're working hard towards may shift, you know, it may end up being a little something different, or some of those stumbles or collaborations may form it into something new and different and even more innovative or interesting than you ever imagined. But it's just the the doing of it that helps it happen, whatever it ends up being. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the creative process, I think that that's part of the, the, the joy of the creative process is 
you know, when, when you have a singular mindset and you want to create something and you're, you know exactly what you want. And then it, it's, it, it's, it's in the neighborhood or, or not even in, in the same, you know, quadrant of what you want it to do. Sometimes you have to sort of step back and look at it and say, well, wait a minute, I've just created something that I entirely had no intention of making. And this, this is better or this is better suited for something else that I didn't even think about. And now I now have something that fits something else that maybe that's the road I want to travel on. It's very, very important to be uh, not to be so incredibly critical of your own work or at least to have perspective as to where things fit in. Totally. Yeah, I think flexibility and being open, you know, I think there's this balance between wanting to or being true to your vision, but also being open and flexible for things that are just unexpected pleasures. Indeed. So, yeah, the, I just wanted to then circle back to that. It it came from Kuchar, which I actually haven't seen in a little while, but I, I just recall it being a movie that is about the Kuchar brothers who made films that were on a lower budget. And in the film itself, they talk a lot about doing things with that low budget and teaching uh, students how to do all sorts of crazy stuff. So I think I'm just going to look here on the website so that I can kind of better describe sometimes when I'm thinking about a project or something that I really admire, I can remember the feeling of why I admire it, but not exactly how to describe what it is. Mm -hmm. So on the website for kucharbrothers.org, it says it came from Kuchar as a hilarious and touching story of artistic obsession, compulsion and inspiration. Long before YouTube, there were the outrageous no budget movies of underground filmmaking twins, George and Mike Kuchar. Mm -hmm. George and Mike grew up in the Bronx in the 50s. At the age of 12, they became obsessed with Hollywood melodramas and began making their own homespun melodramas with their aunt's 8mm camera. They used their friends and family as actors and their Bronx neighborhood as their set. Early Kuchar titles featured in this film, including I Was a Teenage Rum Pot <laughs> and Born of the Wind. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, other other titles are Sins of the Flesh of Poids. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Hold Me While I'm Naked. Yeah, it's a uh, boy if they're, you know, it's, it's, in, it's in league with uh, Ed Wood in terms of... Uh, you know, don't don't hold back. I, I have to throw out throw out a little detail. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, I am I am of the generation of Star Wars kids. Mm -hmm. You know, I walked into that movie when I was boy. I'll, I'll, I'll date myself happily. Um, in '77, I was uh, I was nine years old, and I walked into that movie wanting to see the movie, but not knowing much about it. And I walked out a transformed individual. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to make movies, and I wanted to work in entertainment and I wanted to make people feel as as happy and as exhilarated as I did walking out of that film. And I remember I went straight to my dad's Super 8 camera and I said, I'm going to make Star Wars my way. And uh, I rounded up all my friends in the neighborhood and I got a tape recorder and made some some costumes that were pretty <laughs> pretty terrible <laughs> and uh, my friend had a like a monster mask that was in, in in the neighborhood of Darth Vader and uh, we burned my friend's flying saucer model and for in, in epic style and I remember when you know that was back in the day when you had to wait for it to be developed and my 
I remember also when I wanted film, I, I remember my mom just stopped me in my tracks. She said, okay, you can have some film, but what you, what's the script? Where's the script? Are you going to write a script? And I just thought to myself, what? What? I have to write a <laughs> script? That's going to stop me in my tracks. I, I have to stop and write a script? I thought we could just do this on the fly because that's as fast as my brain was carrying me. And moral of my exciting story was I remember, you know, a couple of weeks later, the Super 8 film uh, arrived and I could not wait. And I invited my friends over and we put it in the projector, projected it on the wall. And 90% of it was so dark, you could barely tell what was happening. Mm -hmm. And then the action of running around and skidding in the grass and shooting at each other, you know, laser beams and blasts and so on and so forth, that I knew that I could scratch into the, uh, into the film to make it look like just like the ones in Star Wars. It just was terrible. <laughs> and and I'll, I'll i'll add one more detail to that because i was talking to a friend you know facebook is the great connector and i talked to a friend you know, who was in the movie who i hadn't talked to in years and uh he said whatever happened to that film remember that film and i remember we were talking about it and he said you know because i i said to him i'm like I, I just don't remember whatever happened to that i wonder if that's buried in my attic or boxes or something and he said oh no that's long gone i said well how do you know and he said well i always thought it was it was quite epic when i didn't get to see it when it first un unspooled and you, and i came to you david and i said you know i want to see the movie and i said you want to see the movie I'll show you the movie. And I went right inside because we lived across the street. And I brought the spool of film out. And I said, you want to see this movie? I'll show you the movie. And I rolled it out on the street. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and there's the movie right there. And he just thought that was, I guess he thought that was pretty epic at the time. But I, for me, it was just about absolute frustration that what was in my head did not appear you know, in reality. So I, I felt a kinship to the Kuchars and, and the Ed Woods of the world that uh, my vision was not quite met, but at least I tried. Yes. And I share some of those early frustrations and, and inspiration as well. I went to see Star Wars in 77. So I was 10. My brother would have been eight. And I still remember whatever we went to, whatever the theater was, it was in Southern California and I, it had surround sound. Mm -hmm. And I remember just, I, I can still remember hearing the sound coming from behind mm. over us. And then, you know, seeing the, the, the first ship kind of come in over you. And then I remember getting in the car afterwards and went with my, my brother and my dad and my mom and, and just looking out the window and sort of gazing up into the stars and feeling like my life was forever changed. And my brother and I played around with doing the stop motion animation with Legos and, you know, whatever else we had around that were our toys and stuff. And so we would work tirelessly making these little micro movements with the the legos and the little characters and then you know the the movie itself would end up being three minutes long or sure. something well, they felt like little triumphs well think about that i mean uh and, and this is very well known but for for our generation uh there there was no other film that was as gargantuan as star wars in terms of its influence on the creative mind of a bunch of impressionable kids I know that it was my impetus to to face West 
and head out to Los Angeles and Hollywood and the entertainment industry. And so many people like me, it, it responded the same way, you know, because up until then, movies were enjoyed by me. I, you know, I liked movie. I'd walk out. I was exhilarated from, you know, Snow White or Fantasia or Grizzly Adams, you know, <laughs> you know anything like that. But uh, Star Wars changed the game. And, and that was the first time that I decided not only was I massively entertained, but I, I now needed to know how, how. How was this made? How how did they do it? How can I do the same thing? And that that began my quest to discover how movies were made and how you know it's funny. I knew that enough enough about movies after doing some uh, research. You know that there's a director, there's actors, there you know you call rolling and you cut. You know after you film it, and uh, I was convinced that they shot Star Wars in space, but. With you know George Lucas in in a spacesuit saying, "Okay, Tie Fighters over here on the left, X Wings on the right, and action." And then they'd shoot it, and they'd say, "Okay, cut. Now everyone back to one." But it was in space, and I was pretty convinced of that until I was probably about thirty eight years old. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. <laughs> I exaggerate a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so besides um, Ed Wood. Are there other movies or books or other things that you think of that sort of are good things to consume that help spark that sense of adventurous creative abandon? Yeah, you know, pl I mean, there's there's plenty out there. Um, and, you know, Stephen King's book on writing is really great if you're interested in writing yourself in any way, shape or form. And in terms of movies, I, I find I gravitate to stuff that is heartwarming, dramatic, and comedic. And that, that's a very, 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 very hard balance to, to capture. And, you know, when, when you ask me what things sort of stir the creativity inside of me, I want to go to like a Terry Gilliam film, like Time mm -hmm. Bandit, Baron Munchausen, or I'll, I'll, mm -hmm. I'll go to the Coen brothers and, you know, the big Lebowski or, you know, they're, they're, they're among my favorite filmmakers. But it's funny, one thing that pops into my head that doesn't get bandied about enough, but it's really one of the greatest films I've ever seen and it remains in my top 10 is, is Breaking Away. Mm. And, and that's, that's uh, you know, it's a bicycle movie, it takes place in, in Indiana. And it's, a, it's about, well, people can discover it. I don't want to describe too much, you know, but what really is remarkable about that film is the way it balances generations, it balances economic status, it balances dreams, and it, it balances the the harshness of reality with uh, lots of com comedy, heart, drama, and just impeccable acting. You know, much like, you know, the end of the summer when, when you realize that summer's ending and you got to do something, whether it's going back to school or starting a job or just doing something with your life, this so, so wonderfully and magically captures, you know, the sound of the cicadas buzzing in the background while you're just, you know, you've got a week left or just an afternoon left and you got to figure out what's next. But you have your friends and you know they'll be by your side. But you also know that they're growing up, you're growing up, and you're ultimately growing apart because life gets in the way. That, to me, from a creative standpoint, it, it, it's just such a high bar to compare to where you have other films, other stories, whatever you're trying to do creatively. 
is try and find some story that has resonance and heart and humanity, because that's a very, very, very hard thing to do. Yeah, and I think about that movie, and I haven't seen it in a while, but I do remember going to see it with my dad and my brother, probably, is that there's some time that the fellas in the movie, the main crowd of friends are, you know, just hanging out at a levee mm-hmm. or something like that. And I think yeah, those yeah. those moments of being a young person where you're just spending time with your friends are really, um, I don't know what the word is, just resonate with what it is. Oh, I guess seeing that as a young person, it, it felt very real that they're just hanging out together, kind of figuring out who's going to move out of town and who's going to end up staying in town and all those little things that happen. It's interesting that you mentioned that movie too, because I was just on another podcast as a guest um, yesterday or a couple of days ago, and they asked me to bring a movie that influenced my thoughts about relationships and romance when I was young. And I chose a movie I hadn't seen in years, and it's written by the same person. And it was not quite as <laughs> as iconic of a film at all, but it's called Four Friends. Mm-hmm. Did you ever see that movie? Uh, Peter, Ga- Peter Gates film? Or Steve Teshish wrote? Steve Teshish wrote it. Uh-huh. Four Friends. Don't know if I've seen that. I, in fact, I know I haven't. Yeah, Arthur Penn directed it. Um, yeah, no, that's one that that escaped me, and I, I've seen I've seen many films. I'd love to seek that one out. What what about Four Friends stands out to you? I think the naturalness of the relationship between there's a a woman and three guys. They're all best buddies in high school, and right off the bat, this is no spoiler. All the fellas are in love with her and kind of infatuated with her. She's obsessed with Isadora Duncan. So she has this free flowing sort of sensuality and connection to her body and everything that's a little a little much for the guys to handle. And so they're all sort of fascinated with her. But I think their relationships together and the awkwardness of first love and uh, also similar to breaking away, just what decisions are they all going to make and how is that going to you know, ultimately lead to their happiness and satisfaction and all that. So that's wonderful. Teen awkwardness. And yeah, <laughs> it's a little, <laughs> there's some weird stuff in it. It's a little slower. You know, I, it came out in, I think, 81 or something like that. So there were things I'd remembered about it that were great and other things I was like, yeah, you know, but, but it, I, I do think it, you'd find it I'm, interesting. I'm, it's well, now I would absolutely, you know, uh, during when it came out, uh, I was in a vein where it had to be sci-fi or fantasy or horror or nothing. And, and and so I'm sure I very selectively chose not to see it. So let's see what else. Oh, I wanted to ask you a bit about your connection to Tiki. What is it about Tiki that, that you like? Ah, Tiki. Tiki to me is, is I'm very interested in, in the, the, the foundations of what Tiki is, but primarily it's kind of a state of mind. It's like a desert island state of mind where, you know, in the 60s, the Polynesian Polynesian pop became a very big thing. And it was, it, there were lots of restaurants that you could go to. You could play uh, music, Esquivel, Martin Denny, uh, anything that you wanted. And you could turn your backyard barbecue into an exotic island oasis with, with complicated mixed drinks and mixology and music and put on a lay and, uh, 
and enjoy yourself. And uh, so much interesting art and music and tiki mugs and restaurants and food and all sorts of just pop culture artifacts have, have come out of tiki culture. And I've always found it very whimsical and entertaining and fun, you know, whether you're wearing a fez or a, a grass skirt. It, it allows you to sort of disconnect from everyday life and have a drink and be on your own desert island in your mind. And that's why I love tiki. Awesome. That is why I love tiki as well. <laughs> I've actually gotten into tiki quite a bit over the years. And up here in Oakland, there are some tiki connections that are pretty strong. We've got the original Trader Vic's here mm -hmm. in Oakland. And then in Alameda, which I used to live in Alameda, which is very close by to Oakland, there is Forbidden Island. Oh, yes. Spend a lot of hours and dollars <laughs> over there having some delicious drinks and listening to some fantastic music. And well, you know, for, it's sad because lots of Trader, Trader Vic's have kind of fallen off the map. But for everyone that disappears, you get some really nice new brand new pop-up bars that really embrace Polynesian pop. And that's the wonderful thing about it. You know, and I think a lot of people don't realize that it, it, it was really mainstream at a certain point. I mean, to the fact that, you know, Disneyland, they, they, they made the Enchanted Tiki Room, which still operates and, and people go to today, if at the very least, to, you know, get out of the sun and take a quick power nap <laughs> while the bird, <laughs> you know, and, and then you have your, your Dole Whip ice cream. You know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, I, I live in Los Angeles and there are, there are multiple tiki bars. Uh, some come, some co, but there's one place in particular called the Tiki Tea in Hollywood, which is a tiny, tiny place that's uh, run by a generation of owners slash bartenders, and they have spectacular drinks. And if you're ever in Los Angeles, uh, I highly recommend making a pilgrimage there. I have not gone to that one yet. It's an absolute, absolute requirement. Oh, and I, I also have to throw in, if you go to Disneyland mm -hmm. uh, and Disney World, they have a, a Trader Sam's, which is a, a wonderful tiki bar. And not only can you get cool tiki mugs and tiki drinks and food and, you know, bask in the music and the ambiance, whenever you order specific drinks, various things happen within the bar. It's very Disneyfied. So, you know, there, if, if something is a shipwreck, you know, the whole place gets dark and you hear the wind blow and thunder and lightning or, uh, you know, depending on the drink, you, a volcano will erupt right outside the window and you can see it happening. And it's really fun. Yeah, I think you, know, you mentioned the words whimsical and creative. And, and I think those are a couple of things that besides, yeah, the kind of aloha lifestyle or just the relaxation and having a tropical drink and the kind of smells, there's a certain smell that happens when you're in a tiki bar mm -hmm. that's, you know, infused with lime and coconut and the spray of water. Yeah, there's usually maybe some sort of water feature or something like that. It, it's, it's so relaxing. Yeah, that there's this creativity in the designing of the tiki heads or the tiki mugs and all that stuff. We went to, my husband and I went to Three Dots and a Dash in Chicago mm. last year. And their location is 
kind of off the beaten path in downtown Chicago where you go behind another restaurant and into an alley mm-hmm. and then go downstairs. So you get that kind of a little bit of a, a speakeasy vibe as well. <laughs> but we had some really great drinks there and got to chat with one of the bartenders and we had a fun time talking with him and he would, uh, you know, he, he slid us a couple of uh, extra drinks, which was oh, really nice. Always good. Well, that's the thing. It's kind of a, a secret handshake. People who appreciate it, the, the ones who are behind the bar, they know who, who are really the, the genuine article you know, who appreciate this kind of stuff. There's almost a cosplay element to it. You know, you don't just show up at a tiki bar. You got to put on your, you know, your Aloha shirt or your, you know, your shag art. Totally. If you show your shag tattoo, you know, you'll get it. <laughs> but uh, it's funny. I love I love the fact that it's uh, the name of that bar because um, my grandparents on my dad's side both worked for Western Union and knew Morse code. And that's how they met. Oh, wow. And so I find that always very interesting. And it's obviously a a lost language and a lost art that nobody knows about. You know, I think everyone at the very least should know how to do SOS and Morse code. You never know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if you were on Gilligan's Island, you knew that. But um, uh, they, yeah, they met. Uh, I ultimately feel like they were sort of like the first internet match.com type daters because uh, each Morse coder who works for Western Union or New Morse Code, everyone speaks the same language, but each has their own kind of unique signature, the way they do their Morse code. Um, You know, little minor idiosyncrasies that if you are an expert coder, you would know, you know, people's sort of personalities based on that. And in their downtime, when they're not sending out telegrams, uh, a lot of these Morse coders would chit chat with each other, just you know, like online, <laughs> online chat. <laughs> right. My my grandfather would chat with with someone who uh, at one point he said, "You have a very light touch for a coder," and it was my grandmother, and she responded, "That's because I'm a woman." And of course, there were very few. In fact, she might have been the first female active uh, employed Morse coder for Western Union. And that's how they connected. They basically made a love connection via Morse code. And I exist based on that connection. That is a great story. I actually met my husband, the modern version of that on Friendster, if you remember that website at all. Wow, I remember that. (laughs) But I remember we really, even though we had some phone calls right away and uh, started dating in person right away, it was really a lot of instant messaging back and forth back when that was pretty new to me. He was a early adopter, but for me, getting to know him through his personality of instant messaging, I felt like it was a new and different way to to date somebody. Sure. And so, yeah, that kind of reminds me of that. And it felt romantic and special and sort of different. Well, at the time, that was kind of, really? You, you met someone you met online? You know, isn't that crazy of you? Um, it's very common now, obviously. I, I met my wife the same way. And when we when we exchanged vows, I talked about how much like you know my grandparents, we met mm. in a modern version. Modern version, same thing. Yeah. And I think it's very cool. Great thing about modern about online dating in general. Kind of get to cut to the chase a little faster. Where religion is this person, or do they care? Do you care at all about that? Are they allergic to cats? You can kind of get a bunch of the first date questions out of the way before you waste time deciding you don't want to pursue it. And I found that was always advantageous in that realm of 
finding a way to meet people. Yeah. And I think you can get a good idea of somebody's creativity and the way that they look at the world through the way that they write about their likes or interests. And if they could spell or not. <laughs> yeah, that's true too. <laughs> so before we kind of wrap up today, I feel like we've talked about a few different cool and interesting subjects, but I'd like to make sure that we touch on anything that you're up to today that you'd like to share with us. Yeah. What's going on with you currently? Currently, currently, uh, as I'm a freelance writer, I've been writing some uh, movie reviews and movie-related pieces for LA Weekly. And uh, I also have uh, a series of articles coming up for The Hollywood Reporter that are really fun for me because they capitalize on the, the nostalgia factor of these these anniversaries of films. And I can mention, too, that I've got coming down the pike. One is... Uh, an interview with Ralph Bakshi, the animator. Uh, I talked to him extensively about the making of 1978's The Lord of the Rings. Uh, that was quite quite a story and quite a tale, and I, I had a nice two-hour conversation with him. Child's Play uh, is celebrating its 30th anniversary as well, and uh, I talked to the uh, the filmmakers of Child's Play, mm -hmm. director Tom Holland, uh, the writer and creator Don Mancini, and David Kirshner, who's produced with Don over the last 30 years all of the Chucky uh, movies and sequels, and uh, there's lots to love if you love Chucky. Uh, and so that was a real treat as well. You know, the best thing I could do is ask you a question and they, they laugh and they say, good question. And they're silent because they really have to think about something that they haven't really talked about in years and years and years. And, you know, in between doing these stories, I get to actively, whether it's on a daily basis on social media or on the site itself, doing some uh, what I like to call nostalgia curating for It Came From Blog. I never know what to call it. It's called It Came From, but everyone calls it It Came From Blog because that's where you can find it. Right, right. I like that because the word blog, when you say it came from blog, it almost sounds like a, a monster movie name or something. <laughs> yeah, it came from outer space. It came from beneath the sea. You're talking about stop motion. You know, there's the Ray Harryhausen connection. Why I call myself a nostalgia curator is, you know, I feel like whatever pops into my mind or if something reminds me of something and tangentially, I come up with some memory of something I haven't thought of in quite some time. I really enjoy sharing it because it gives me great joy just to have the response of people saying, oh my gosh, I have not thought of that. I totally forgot I had that toy. I totally forgot that movie existed. And uh, to be able to share that stuff and then talk about it and nostalgia stories beget nostalgia stories, it, it really fuels my, my happiness in my daily life as I go about searching for my next personal adventure. Well, that is wonderful. I I'm just scrolling about your blog right now, and I love the layout. It's so visually appealing, and there's lots of articles to dive into. Some are my Entertainment Tonight interviews. Mm -hmm. Some are pieces of my Famous Monsters interviews, and some are, are brand new interviews. In fact, we talked about Shag. Uh, I had a, a, a great sit-down with Shag, and I, I put you know his, his inspirations from the late 60s to the early 70s that defined and inform his art. Oh, cool. I felt it's important to preserve some of these wonderful conversations I've had. So I, I kind of put them in a, in a new format to be rediscovered on It Came From, in addition to lots of brand new stuff that I do. 
Well, I'm really glad that you're archiving it all here in one place and that we can come check it out. And I've really enjoyed following you on Twitter. It's it's one of my highlights to see what you're tweeting about. So I going to say, oh, have you thought of doing a podcast? You have such a appealing voice and are such a great natural conversationalist. Uh, I have thought of doing a podcast many times. I hosted and produced my own podcast when I was at Famous Monsters. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actively guest on other podcasts, some more regularly than others. I'm very happy to be chatting with you today. Um, but hosting my own I'm not not going to do a podcast. I'm, I'm a firm believer that I don't want to start a project and then abandon it because I will disappoint, if not anyone else, I will disappoint myself. But uh, as I currently am in my sort of freelance mode, uh, I have a more erratic schedule and I just haven't gotten quite to it yet. So like I said, it gives me, gives me great joy to be part of some other podcasts. And if you go to my site, it came from blog.com, there's a podcast link uh, in the menu that uh, includes most of the podcasts that I've either hosted or guested on. And you will be joining that when this finally comes out. I look forward to being part of the family here, the podcast family. <laughs> well, this has been absolutely delightful, David. Your stories are fantastic. And I really enjoyed talking with you today. I think, uh, you know, based on what you like to do in your in your life professionally and personally, I, I think this is a, a great project of yours. Because th this sort of is the kind of thing that I find very interesting. You know, it's one thing to just kind of talk about movies all day, and that's all fine and good, especially if you're enthusiastic about it. But, you know, there, there are philosophical avenues that you don't always get a chance to sort of expand on when you talk to people. I, I enjoy having an opportunity to sort of uh, share some tales, but also ask some questions and pursue some avenues that uh, you don't always hear on a podcast. So I, I hope you continue. Well, thank you. All right. Well, let's call it a day. Thank you again, David. Thank you, Heidi, for having me on. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll see you all next time. And so wraps up another episode of Vibrant Visionaries. You can find an archive of all the episodes at vibrantvisionaries.com. Ciao.